Welcome to the New to Jesus podcast, where we find foundational truths to help you take your first steps in your walk with Christ. Hey, this is Dan Bergman. Welcome back to the New to Jesus podcast. We've already looked at John chapter 1 and John chapter 2. And so in this episode, we're going to go into John chapter 3. We've seen Jesus' miracle at the wedding in Cana, and we've also seen the first Passover of Jesus' earthly ministry. And it's now that we come to a very familiar passage, John 3. Verse 1 says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, first of all, what in the world is a Pharisee? Actually, it comes from a Hebrew word, parushim, meaning the pure ones, or to purify. There was a lot of different groups within Judaism in Jesus' day. Two of these were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were kind of the party of the people. They were the regular people from within Judaism. The Sadducees, the Zadokim, were the ones that were the priestly party, the one that had to do with the temple and the sacrifices and all of those things. The Sadducees didn't really believe in any supernatural stuff. Like, they didn't believe in angels or an afterlife or the resurrection of the dead or miracles, any of those kind of things. But the Pharisees did, and they believed in the Scripture. They believed what God said. Now, by the time that we see Jesus interacting with this group of people known as the Pharisees, there had become a practice of accepting the traditions and writings and interpretations of the rabbis to be on par with the Word of God. In fact, it's referred to as the oral law, believing that they received these things from the mouth of God to Moses and just was handed down by word of mouth, in addition to the written word, the written scripture. There's a problem with that, though, because in the Old Testament, we read that all that God commanded Moses, he wrote down. Anyway, just because somebody is a Pharisee doesn't mean that they're a bad person or that they're a hypocrite, although in Jesus' day, many of them were. But many of them came to believe in Jesus as their Messiah and Savior, this man Nicodemus being one of them. We read that he was a ruler of the Jews. He was actually part of kind of a Jewish court system known as the Sanhedrin. He was a very high up, respected man in the Jewish community. Verse 2 says, The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So, Oftentimes, the question is asked, why did Nicodemus come to Jesus at night? Well, there's a couple of different reasons, possibly. We aren't told in Scripture. Maybe he was afraid of judgment from his peers, that he was going to see this rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. Or maybe he was too busy to meet with Jesus during the day. After all, he was a ruler among the Jewish people, a very highly respected rabbinic leader. Or maybe third, maybe it was Jesus that was too busy. After all, Jesus was constantly being thronged by people, multitudes seeking after him, trying to get a hold of him, to talk to him, to have him heal them. It's not a far stretch to imagine that Nicodemus may have came to Jesus at night because it was the only time he could 
be alone with him to ask him these questions. Maybe it was a combination of the three. I'm not sure. We're not told. But Nicodemus says in verse 2, For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. What miracles do you suppose that Nicodemus was referring to? It seems to be not only the idea of the water being turned into wine that we read about in John chapter 2, but there's other miracles that were done while Jesus was in Jerusalem that we aren't told what the specific miracles were. You see, the events of John 3 seem to come right after John 2. Sometimes there's a gap of time from one chapter to the next. But here it seems to be pretty closely related chronologically. Nicodemus likely saw or even heard of Jesus for the first time at the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. It is the unspecified miracles that Jesus did at the Passover that Nicodemus is referring to. And if we look back just in the previous chapter, John chapter 2 and verse 23, we read that now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, speaking of Jesus, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. So we're not told what these miracles are, but it's almost for certain that this is what Nicodemus is referring to when he says, no man can do the miracles that you're doing except God be with him. And so Jesus answers him in verses 3 through 9. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, which means truly, truly, or assuredly, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't directly address Nicodemus's comment, but instead, as only Jesus could, he pinpoints Nicodemus's need which is to be born again. Now, we talked in the previous episodes, specifically in the first episode, about a biblical definition of life and death. And that because Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, and we are all descendants from Adam and Eve, we inherited that sinful nature, that bent towards wickedness, that desire to do wrong, and that we are tainted as as mankind with this idea of sin, breaking God's law, falling short of the glory of God, as it says in the book of Romans. And so when God told Adam, the day that you eat from that tree, you're going to surely die, we talked about how that very second Adam died spiritually. He was severed with his connection to the life giver. And as a result of that, over time, years later, he died physically. But he was already dead spiritually the moment he ate of that fruit. You and I were born spiritually dead. We are not connected to God. We need to be made spiritually alive. We need to be born spiritually. That's what Jesus is talking about here. There's numerous passages in the Hebrew scriptures, like in Ezekiel, where it talks about getting a new heart that relates to what is being said here in John chapter 3. So Nicodemus doesn't understand. And Nicodemus says to him in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus isn't trying to be disrespectful here. He's just honestly asking the question, 
how, how is it possible to be born a second time? And Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so this idea of being born again, Jesus relates to being born of the Spirit in verse 5. Now there's a question that comes up, what is Jesus talking about when he says a man must be born of water and of the Spirit? What does he mean? There's lots of groups within Catholicism and Protestantism that have taken this verse to mean that you need to be baptized in order to be saved. Is that what Jesus is talking about? No, it's not. Oftentimes, in the Hebrew mindset and throughout the Hebrew Bible, there's this concept of parallelism, meaning A and B also equal C and D. And there's this verse-by-verse parallel that's given to show you that these two things are equal. They are parallel. And when we read the very next verse, verse 6, we understand exactly what Jesus means by being born of water and of the Spirit. Jesus says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, born of water. What happens before a baby is born? We call it the water breaks, that embryonic fluid that is surrounding that baby when he is born physically, born of water. How do we know that he's talking about this and not baptism? In the very next verse, verse 6, he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You see, those two are parallel. Born of the flesh is equal to being born of water. Born of the spirit is equal to being born of the spirit. And these two go together. Born of water is not water baptism, but rather being born physically. This is in reference to the liquid environment of the womb. Verse 6, in conjunction with verse 4, makes this abundantly clear. You can't be born again unless you're born the first time. It only makes sense. Verse 6, marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. This is absolutely necessary. And then Jesus says this in verse 8, The wind bloweth where it listeth. Basically, the wind blows where it wants to go. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. You can hear the wind, but you can't see it. You can see the limbs bend. You can see the grass blow, but you're not actually seeing the wind itself. And Jesus says, So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. It's interesting to note that the Greek word for wind, pneuma, as well as the Hebrew word for wind, ruach, both are also used for the word spirit. And so somebody that is born again, born spiritually, you're not going to look at that person and say, oh, that person has a cross on their forehead. They must be born again. It's not that. It's their actions. You can't instantly look at somebody and ascertain that that person is born again because of A, B, or C. You can tell that somebody is saved when you see how they live, how they act, if their testimony is true or if they're just claiming to be a Christian. And there's lots of people in this planet who claim to be a Christian, but they are not born again. 
Then Nicodemus is confused. He answers and said unto Jesus, How can these things be? He's, he's curious. How can somebody be born again, born of the Spirit? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? In the Old Testament, I alluded to this earlier, there's numerous passages that parallel the idea of being born again. That's why Jesus can say to Nicodemus, how are you a master in Israel and you don't know these things? You've never heard of this before. The phrase, a circumcised heart, was the Old Testament equivalent of being born again. This was not the same thing, but it was a heart surrendered to the Lord. Circumcision was a sign, an outward sign of a covenant that God made with Abraham. And that was a physical thing. But here, he's saying in Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. Don't be so hard and prideful. You need to have a changed heart. Jeremiah 4, 4 says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. This is not talking about a physical thing, okay? It's not a physical operation, but it is a spiritual, metaphorical, symbolic idea of being surrendered to the Lord, having a new heart, a heart of wanting to seek him and wanting to please him and repenting of sin. In Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah, the prophet, prophesies of a new covenant that would come one day that would enable the forgiveness of sins. He says this in verse 33, But this shall be the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the New Covenant, also known as the New Testament. The New Testament is not a book, although that's what we call it, okay? Matthew through Revelation, we refer to as the New Testament. But biblically, the New Testament is the gospel, the forgiveness of sins that God enables through the sacrifice of the Messiah. That's why at the Last Supper Passover meal, when Jesus took the cup that symbolized his blood, he said, this is the cup of the New Testament. Jesus was saying at that moment that everything that Jeremiah talked about, God's law written in our hearts, Everybody having a personal relationship with God and the forgiveness of sins is all made possible through his blood. Ezekiel 11, verses 19 through 21, says, And I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and will give them an heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. This is a prophecy about God giving a new spirit unto those that would repent and trust him. 
But as for them whose heart walketh after the heart of their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their way upon their own heads, saith the Lord God. Another verse, Ezekiel 36, verse 25 says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. God talks about in the Old Testament scriptures about a new heart and a new spirit, aka being born again. That's why Jesus could tell Nicodemus, how in the world are you a master in Israel and you, you've never heard of this concept before, this idea? Jesus says in verse 11, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and ye receive not our witnesses. Who's he referring to with the R and the we? Well, he's talking about, I believe, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus can speak these things about spiritual things and heavenly things because he knows it. He's seen it. He understands it. He can communicate it to a mortal man named Nicodemus. He says in verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? The very basis of what Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about is kind of teeter-tottering between the spiritual realm and the physical realm. He just, he's describing spiritual things in physical terms so that Nicodemus can understand, being born again, being born spiritually. And then Jesus says, No man hath ascended up into heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. It's hard for us to understand this and grasp this, but God is omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere. He's everywhere at once. Jesus is God. He said, I and my Father are one. So Jesus is both here on the earth during his earthly ministry, talking to Nicodemus, and at the same time, he's also in heaven. God is outside of time. It's hard for us to understand. Jesus did not cease being God the moment he was born in a manger. Then in verse 14, Jesus tells Nicodemus about a story that he would be familiar with. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Interesting. This is a reference to Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. The Bible says in Numbers 21, verse 4, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. God sends these fiery, venomous serpents to judge and punish these people that were fighting against God and against Moses. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, 
for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Now listen to this. Verse 8. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass, if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. This is the context of one of the most famous verses in all of the scripture, John 3.16. Listen to verse 14 again as Jesus builds up this story in this context. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Moses made this serpent of brass as God instructed him and he put it on a pole and the cure to that venom to that bite was to simply look at the serpent of brass that Moses put on the pole and anybody that looked just simply directed their eyes to that serpent on the pole they were instantly healed from that venom Jesus said in the same way, the Son of Man, which was Jesus' favorite title to refer to himself. We'll get into that at a later episode. Maybe we'll do a whole episode about the title, the Son of Man. But Jesus says, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Verse 15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the antidote for Genesis 2.16 and 17. Genesis 2.16 and 17 is the curse of death because of sin. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Spiritual death instantly. How do we get spiritual life? How do we become born again, born of the Spirit, born from above? By simply believing in the Son of God, who died on the cross to pay for your sins and rose again. Just like that serpent was lifted up. In Numbers chapter 21, Jesus is lifted up on a cross, and all who believe in him, the Bible says, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus didn't come here to condemn everybody. You see, everybody is already condemned. You don't need Jesus to come and say you're condemned. You're already condemned. The reason that Jesus came was to save everybody, to save the world, to save you and I from the penalty of our sins. He says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not 
those that have not believed in Jesus as their Savior, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus will return as King of kings and judge of all. At his first coming, he came as the Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb, to die for your sins and for mine, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. When he comes again, he will be the judge of all. But when he came the first time, it was as the Savior. Those without Christ stand condemned already. And this is parallel to some verses in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 that talk about people being without excuse because creation, nature, shows them that there is a God and that they are condemned before him. What is this condemnation? Verse 19, and this is the condemnation, Jesus says, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. This goes together very well with what we read about in John chapter 1 about Jesus being the true light. Here it says that men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. People don't want to do stuff in broad daylight that they're ashamed of, or that's wicked, or that's wrong. They wait until it's dark to do those things, so that they won't be caught, or they'll feel more comfortable doing it. But verse 21 says, But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. You know, there are some who refuse to repent and get saved simply because of their love for the darkness. Now then it says in verse 22, After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea. And there he tarried with them, and baptized. John also was baptizing in Anan near to Salim because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison. Now, Anan, from the Hebrew word Ain, means a fountain. Jesus is in Judah baptizing. John the Baptist is not. He's in the spring near Salim. The actual location is uncertain. The closest possible place that we know of is a spring next to a mount called Tel Radrak, or Tel Shalem. This is about four miles south of Beit Shan. Then in verse 25, it says, Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. Do you remember back in chapter 1, we talked about the idea of baptism and the Jewish roots of it? having to do with the ritual purification of both people and objects. So when it says here there arose a question about purifying, they're questioning about what we call baptism. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. They're trying to get John to be jealous of Jesus, John the Baptist. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. 
He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, or the groom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. My best friend and I, we were both in each other's weddings. His wedding was a week before mine. I was his best man. He was my best man. And it's an enjoyable thing to see your friend get married. There's no animosity or jealousy. There's joy. And John the Baptist here, he's like, I am not the groom. I'm the best man. And uh, I'm happy for the Messiah, for the Savior. And I just simply want to point people to him. And then John says this famous verse, this awesome verse in verse 30. John the Baptist says, he, Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. Do you have that kind of an attitude? Do I? We should. We shouldn't be constantly seeking to increase ourselves, but rather to increase the glory that Jesus receives through our life. Then he says in verse 31, He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And so the emphasis is upon believing that Jesus is who he says he is, giving him glory because he is the only Savior. He is the one by whom we obtain forgiveness and righteousness in the eyes of God. And we should seek to glorify him with our life. We shouldn't be seeking to promote ourselves and increase ourselves but simply to increase the reach that Jesus has through us and the glory that he receives with our life. God bless you, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to the New to Jesus podcast. You can go to our website, newtojesus.com. That's new, the number two, jesus.com. If you'd like to find me on social media, You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at DanielBergman99. And if you'd like to rate and review this podcast on iTunes, that helps us to get in front of more people to help them take their first steps as new believers in Jesus.